and welcome to the 11th episode of the Gravescast. Uh, we've made it past 10. Heck yeah. Uh, now today we have a theater actor, a green tea addict, and the second best web content developer I know. Uh, welcome, Abigail Rose. How are you doing, Abby? Well, like, what an introduction. I'm doing great. Thank you. How are yeah. you? Pretty good. You, you excited by your uh, web content prowess? <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of who the first web content developer you're referring to might be, but, you know, I guess I'll take second place. That's not bad. Hey, always strive for second. Well, I don't know about that, but I would say I'm always happier with second. But um, There we go. For the purpose of this podcast, uh, right now we've been kind of blessed by a new revival of a TV show. Um, if you guys aren't familiar, uh, iCarly just came back as a revival type thing, and uh, Abigail and I both watched it in our childhood, so we figured yes. it'd be a good thing to look back on and kind of give our thoughts on basically what we think of the revival. So what were kind of your initial thoughts? Oh, honestly, I had really mixed feelings about it. Like, I know you probably know that because I sort of messaged you as soon as I had watched it. Like, wow, that was a whirlwind. But I think that it was interesting, but I don't know if that's just because I already had nostalgia for the childhood show or if I actually liked the show. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you took that nostalgia away, if I would have liked it as much. Like, what did you think? I never heard about that. I think for starters, um, I was not in favor of seeing it come back. Like when I heard they were doing a revival, I was thinking, uh, I don't know if it's the right call. Um, but upon watching it, it's a decent show. I think it's not the type of thing where you can get hooked off of one episode because the first episode was goddamn awful. (laughs) I don't know how you felt. (laughs) I'm glad we're kind of in agreement there. I mean, I don't like to be too harsh on TV shows based on their first episode because I've watched TV shows and thought this first episode is horrible and then watched more and was like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with this. Um, the Office, spoiler alert. But yeah, it it took me a minute to sort of want to see where it goes. You know what I mean? Like, I'm interested to see where they end up taking it. Yeah, it kind of gets you on the nostalgia factor. That's kind of the hook, right? So I guess that that's mm-hmm. a way of keeping it going more than anything. For sure. I found that the humor, it was kind of, I, like I saw a couple of review channels who had mentioned this already. It was almost, it was definitely too mature for like a kid, a kid audience. Yeah. Like there were definitely like jokes in there that I was like, whoa, that is different than the iCarly childhood show. But I don't know if it's like mature enough to really cater to an adult audience that doesn't have nostalgia for the childhood show. That was something I completely agree with as well. I mean, to me, it seems like an identity crisis. Like going with the revival, are we a Nickelodeon show or are we more so going into like something that's a little more adult based, right? Yeah, I think that will take. Sorry. I was going to say, we saw, like, you know, Spencer saying, damn it. We saw, you know, a lot of the, you know, oh, drinking hot beer and shit like that, which, you know, obviously wouldn't happen in regular iCarly. But is that really enough to cater to the kids that grew up with it, right? Yeah, it's almost like they still need to kind of figure out what direction it's really heading in. Like, what um, audience are they targeting in order for it to really kind of develop? Again, I'm curious to see where it ends up going because... I don't like judging shows too harshly based on their first episode, but 
yeah, um, it, I really have mixed feelings on that. How did you feel? Like you, you said you watched all three episodes, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> My so... sister and I just like binge them all. <laughs> all three. It's not really a binge. How do you feel about it? Like as it went on, like is this something you're going to continue watching? Like what were the what were kind of the good? What was the bad? I mean, we kind of discussed the bad, but what do you like? What did you like about it? Did it live past kind of the nostalgia aspect? Um, there were some aspects that I really did like. Some of the jokes, honestly, I don't like. I don't know if you want me giving spoilers on your podcast. Feel or not. free. Okay, cool. Like some of the jokes, I genuinely found very funny. Like I don't know if people who have watched the show remember, but the character Nora from a childhood show who yeah. like propped the iCarly crew in her basement because she was some sort of psycho fan or something like that. She makes a comeback in like the second episode and I was actually pretty surprised by that. And so they definitely play on some funny jokes with that. Um, I find that a lot of the jokes are definitely based off of referring to things that had happened in the childhood show or it went the opposite direction and they were <laughs> jokes referring to things that were happening currently. Like there was a joke about how, pandemic. oh, what, like a pandemic that could never happen at one point. And it was just kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of thing. So that was definitely amusing. But I find that I saw this with Fuller House too. A lot of these shows that sort of are reboots, they either try really hard to play on nostalgia or they try really hard to play on like what is currently happening in the world. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I think if anything, the other aspect of it is, first of all, you know what? I think it's a pretty like easygoing show. Um, like it's to me like from what I've seen so far, it's it's never gonna match something like Friends or like you talked about Full House, which I don't know if it'll ever really match that. But I mean, it, it seems like something kind of lighthearted that you could tune into and be like, hey, you know, that was from my childhood. Look at them all grown up, right? And I think the totally. cast additions are pretty good. I thought Harper was a good addition as a character. I thought, oh, God, what was her name? Millicent? I think so, yeah, Freddie's daughter. She's all right. I mean, she's not amazing, but so far, I mean, it, it, it feels like you've got the old iCarly characters back with the new additions, right? So, mm-hmm. they, yeah, I did find they felt forced. No, and they, to me, they can support themselves as a cast. I think. What you talked to, like what you touched on with when it comes to the nostalgia and you know playing too hard to it or playing not enough to it, I think is going to be key for this show. I mean, if we like Nora popping up in the second episode, that was nice to see. But how much of that are we going to see? Are we going to get you know like Gibby in another episode, Sam in another episode, Tebow in another episode? Like, are they just going to try and bank on the nostalgia? In that case, I don't think it would be very successful. Yeah. On- Okay, I hope they bring Gibby back. Like, yeah. iCarly is not iCarly without Gibby, let's be honest. But, yeah, I definitely see what you mean. I feel like it also has to stand on its own without that prior nostalgia. So that way they can cater to people who are interested to see what's happening with iCarly, as well as people who are genuinely new to the show and just want something good to watch. Yeah, no, I think that's probably the best way of saying it. And just in relation to Gibby, I saw I was going on Amazon the other day and I saw that they had a Gibby flag, but it's, it's so weird when you think about it. You got like this 10 year old shirtless, I guess, chubby kid, like on a flag. Like, are, are you going to hang that in like your dorm room or something? That, that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at first I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. But when you put it like that, yeah, a little, a little strange. 
I, I mean, it, it seems like more of a grandfather thing, right? Like, if you if you saw a TV show like that now, you would think it's weird, but just looking back on it, you just kind of see it as more nostalgic, right? Oh my god, the things Nickelodeon got away with that we didn't pick up on as kids. And then, like, do you ever do that when you go back and watch old shows and you're like, I did not pick up on that sort of over-my-head joke that they talked about when oh, I was a child? For sure. And I mean, I think that's probably the... If anything, it contributes to the show, right? Because it brings back the audiences to really realize, like, oh my gosh, like, I never realized that this happened back in the day, right? Oh, for sure. Like, different times my sister and I would be watching, like, a kid's show. And some of the jokes, like, my parents would snicker at, but, like, we'd be like, what? And then you watch it back and you're like, oh my god. Do you have any that, like, really stuck with you after rewatching it? Oh, gosh. I don't necessarily know if there's any, like, specific over-my-head jokes, but there was a bit where Spencer supposed Like, are you sure you're good with spoilers yeah, on yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel free. Okay, yeah. There was a bit where Spencer went blind and was trying to impress this date that he was having, and he basically tricked Freddy into being his little helper-servant person <laughs> while he was blind, and he didn't want to tell Freddy he got his sight back. And... Something about Freddy's dry pan sense of humor, I just absolutely love it. I almost like his character now in the reboot way more than I did as a kid. And just his reaction when he found out Spencer was not actually blind was priceless. I would definitely recommend oh, yeah. tuning into that episode. I think it's the second one. Not sure. But yeah, something about that just, oh, that was great. I thought the third one was actually the best. Honestly, I, I think... To me, the best part of the show is seeing the interaction between Freddy and Spencer. I think that is so authentic. Oh, yeah. And it's it's something that you don't really see encapsulated anywhere else. I mean, you know, like Carly and Harper are a good match and everything, but just, I don't know, they, they feel like they're, they're two peas in a pod, Spencer and uh, Freddy. Like, they really, they have the, what is it, the, not the connection, not the charisma. What am I looking for here? Um. Yeah, I get what you're saying, like, you can tell Nathan Kress and Jerry Trainer are genuinely good friends, so there's something genuine about it. It doesn't feel like they low-key hate each other on set and they are acting. Yeah, it's it's authenticity, right? I think that's the yeah. huge part of it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think I'm sure we're going to talk about later in the theater portion. That's totally, totally necessary. Like when you're doing any type of acting to try and at least get along with your castmates because you'd be amazed how much is portrayed to audiences that you don't even realize. Oh, of course. And I mean, if, it, if it's not authentic to them, then it's not going to be authentic to anyone else. Oh, of course not. And I think a lot of the benefit that they've had in coming in this new angle is, I mean, they can tackle the new stuff, right? Like, I thought the third episode was fantastic in relation to, like, the cancellations and stuff like that. Like, Freddy's uh, daughter guilt trips him because he posted on Facebook, like, eight years ago that he didn't want kids. And just to yeah. see, like, all the different reactions and kind of them mocking the reactions of what you see nowadays for cancellations, it was just hilarious. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, like, it's something that people can relate to, I guess. People who are on the internet in this current time as opposed to just people who watch the old show i think that's definitely catering to newer audiences yeah do you think that this is okay so we've talked about the cast we've talked about kind of the humor they're going for the one main concern i have is it seems like so far the actual concept of iCarly itself is a very very low backdrop 
Like, it seems like we've gotten, like, two minutes of it in four episodes, like the actual iCarly show. And it, I guess it begs the question is, back in the day, like, when they were recording the initial iCarly, that, maybe not 100%, but it was more of the Western age of the internet. And, I mean, it was just wacky and stuff, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. everyone enjoys seeing that stuff now, but is the influencer culture really that interesting, like, interesting enough to sustain a show on it? That, I think, is a really good insight because I think, I mean, back when we were watching iCarly as kids, that was, like, <laughs> in the era when anything that was random, that was, like, peak humor. Like, was it just my school that was weird? Or the name Bob, did that just absolutely send everybody into, like, hysterics? Like, somebody would say the name Bob and everyone would just die laughing. I don't think so, but I think you touch on a good point because, I mean, you know, like, stuff like Smosh was huge back then and that was kind of the yeah. encompassing of random. So I think, yeah, just the randomness back then. Yeah, I think it definitely, it shows how influencer, I guess, being an influencer, what that means now and how that's changed. Like, I don't know if the term influencer was really even a thing back then. And so now it's almost like, what is Carly going to do to keep up with the current times while still kind of remaining true to what people know as iCarly? Well, are we even going to get like a remaining to what's true? Because I mean... I don't know. It, it's that was something everyone enjoyed as kids, but obviously as you mature, that's not the type of stuff you're going to watch anymore. But the stuff that we're seeing now is it obviously like you know if if it was something on the internet, like something that you're watching, like I guess what were they doing, like makeup tutorials or something in the first episode? That's something, something like that. Yeah, that's something that people would watch. But having a TV show centered around the idea of creating an influencer kind of channel like to me that just doesn't seem that interesting yeah i mean i feel like people are seeing a lot of inf like there's influencers everywhere so i don't know if a television show about them is almost necessary so i get what you mean i hope they almost develop more of like a tv show plot the more traditional style with characters and interesting um plots i guess and of kind of from the whole influencer narrative well it seems that, that they're doing that already and i mean the the interesting part is like you're seeing this big separation so you really ask yourself like is this still iCarly right because iCarly is iCarly the web show and now when you're seeing it taken away from that aspect is it really iCarly anymore like should it be called iCarly <laughs> Yeah, I get what you mean. It's like, now you're making me think about that. I never, <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that when I was watching it. I was just like, oh yeah, this is fun with the whole cast and crew. You know, there was of course some aspects I wasn't crazy about, but yeah, I get what you mean. It's, are they going to take it in a completely different direction is what you're saying. Is it really still iCarly if yeah. she doesn't have her signature iCarly web show? Just from what we're seeing so far, right? Like maybe they'll lean into it a little more as the season goes on, but right now it's seeming like... It's more the way of connecting the old audience to the new audience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they sort of touched on that. Like, I know, I think it was Millicent that was kind of making fun of Carly for being retired or something like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was definitely, it was sort of addressed a little bit. Like, it's not necessarily true that if you leave your YouTube channel for like 10 years and you come back, you're still going to have like a massive following. Yeah, no, and I mean, that's true, but... You, I, I think you'll find that a lot of people like if they're following you for a specific purpose they want to see you do that 
if you come back and you start doing something completely different, they're not going to appreciate it as much as what they, you know, initially like subscribed for, right? I mean, I'm learning things here. I've never actually done any type of YouTube or anything like that. So this is a whole new kind of world for me to be learning about. I'd recommend calling it something other than iAbby, but I would support your uh, content creation endeavors. <laughs> oh, thank you. Honestly, what would I even do on a YouTube channel? That's a very good question that I don't know if anyone needs to find out. I mean, hey, technically this is already a piece of content that you're helping to create, right? Oh, hell yeah. There we go. Got to so, start somewhere. And then, you know, throughout this podcast, you can come up with a YouTube name. By the end, you can plug it. Oh, beautiful. Oh, yeah, I forgot you gave me a spot to plug my uh, whatever, and I don't have anything to plug. So hopefully by the end of this, we'll see. Yeah. But um, I think one of the interesting parts, too, of what they're touching on is the fear of following, like, becoming irrelevant over time just because I, I think Millicent said it too like what was it like a, a month in internet time is like a decade in real life or something yeah something like that so there's that huge fear of you know following and becoming irrelevant and I mean I don't have that fear I don't know if you have that fear either right no not particularly I think as someone who doesn't spend a lot of time on the internet I'm not as concerned about that you know what i mean so in that case what are you afraid of what am i afraid of the best oh, segue gosh. ever right eh? <laughs> no kidding in that case what am i afraid of um what am i not afraid of <laughs> no i'm kidding um i definitely have a few different phobias spiders i think would definitely be my number one arachnophobia i hate spiders with a passion those aren't the absolute worst. But if you're looking for more so, I guess, phobias that are more specific to me, because I know a lot of people hate spiders. Yeah, I mean, I just like, whatever it is for you, right? Exactly. I have a phobia and a fascination with the ocean. I'm both, like, terrified of it and yet weirdly fascinated by it, if that makes any sense. The ocean is so creepy. I mean, if the, if the ocean dried up and we just saw everything that was in there, I don't think any of us could ever sleep at night. <laughs> oh, God, no. I'm like, okay, I kind of want you to keep exploring. But at the same time, if you could, like, chill out a little bit and not explore all that, that would be great. But, yeah, no, ever since I was little, like, big waves and things like that have always freaked me out. I remember I went to Great Wolf Lodge as a child, and I did not like that. Have you ever been there? It's I love Grey Wolf. Oh my gosh, it's the best place ever. <laughs> oh, thank God for our fellow Canadians. Actually, I think it's in New York too, so it might uh, be in America. Niagara Falls and somewhere else. Yeah, I want to say somewhere in America, but I could be wrong. I'm not sure but where, but I think you're right. That was like, if my parents gave me a, like, where do you want to go for your birthday? I would always pick Great Wolf Lodge. It was the best. Yeah. But they have this massive indoor water park with this giant, you know, those dumping buckets? Yep. Oh my god, I was terrified of that thing just because it was so much water coming at you at one time. It was terrifying, really loud, you know what I mean? You think there's going to be like spider crabs or like mutated frogs in there or just the water? <laughs> just, it was so loud and so cold and so overwhelming to a small child, I was terrified of it. Have you been back recently? Or, like, when did you stop going? I think 
the last time I was there, I was about 12. And honestly, would go at 21. Like, that place was so much fun. Ditto. I mean, I went at, I think the last time was like grade nine. And to be honest with you, some of it just doesn't land anymore. Like the wave pool, you touch the bottom. Not yeah. as fun. But the, the water slides, the environment and everything, you just, you'll never get over it. It's a blast. Yes. The Niagara River Rapids ride. Oh my God. Yep. Such a good time. And the Woolly Mammoth. Niagara Rapids yes. was way better though. Oh my God. Now I'm getting nostalgia for Great Wolf Lodge <laughs> and I want to go back there, but pandemic, probably not a great plan to go there at the moment. No. And I mean, you, you really do question like nowadays, you know, with swimming pools, there's a lot of uh, chemicals they can use now to determine whether a kid, you know, uses the bathroom in the pool or not. Like that's something oh, I've God. never considered. And Oh my gosh, how many kids run through Great Wolf Lodge every day? Oh like... no, don't do that. <laughs> Speaking of phobias, I'm a germaphobe, so oh my god, I'm never going to go in a pool again. No, I, I will, but that's terrifying. You know what? I, Sorry? I will take that over crabs. My my huge phobia is, I, what is it? Is it crustacean phobia? Crustophobia? That sounds right. <laughs> It's, it's either fear of crabs or like fear of old people or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, same thing. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been afraid of crabs. Don't know why. Just, oh my God. If you if you see them eat, if you see them just walking, like just scares the shit out of me. We went to uh, Prince Edward Island one year and I was so scared to go in the water. Wasn't going to do it. And then I was mustering up the courage and my three-year-old cousin looked at the bottom right by the shoreline and she was like, oh my God, there's a crab the size of Shania Twain's face. And what? I just ran back out. Wouldn't go in the water. <laughs> can we, I'm sorry to hear about your childhood crab trauma, but can we go back to the Shania Twain's face thing? Yeah, I don't... I, Three-year-olds are just a lot more educated than the rest of us, apparently. Three-year-olds? Oh my goodness. They are interesting to talk to. Let's put it that way. Oh, for sure. But yeah, you would not like New Brunswick. I have a lot of family out there. It, first thing you see when you walk into the kitchen is like a giant bowl of crab just out oh. on the counter. Yeah, you might not like that too much, but I usually like seeing it because it means dinner is coming soon and seafood is delicious, so... I think we just need to, like, burn down half the country and then we'll be safe. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> rebuild, rebuild a crab-free empire. Oh, my God. See, most people say that about Australia for all the spiders. And meanwhile, you're here like, we need to get rid of the Maritimes because of the crabs. Yeah, you know what? I think Australia has taken enough. I mean, fuck. They had floods. They had fires. Like, oh, that was so sad. Need? Oh, my goodness. And I mean, they're isolated. They're on their own island. They're doing really well in terms of reopening Australia. I'm kind of jealous. I am so Even jealous. with all the spiders. I am so jealous of them. But, I Honestly. mean, you're getting your next vax tomorrow. Mine will be hopefully not October. Hopefully not. I'm sure you can move it up because they're trying really hard to move everyone up. But, yeah, I mean, I'm excited yeah not crazy about needles but worth it and looking forward to just that peace of mind really more than anything yeah and i mean after that it's i don't know i mean covid the whole the whole point of vaccinations and lockdowns and everything was to ensure the hospitals were good and to ensure that people aren't dying 
if absolutely if we get COVID after the vaccines i mean i guess there's still the off chance that you know you know like half your lung capacity gets taken away but for the most part it should be more of a common cold or at least towards that spectrum right yeah let's let's hope it more or less dies out yeah now we can reach that herd immunity yeah no it, it should be easy enough now you touched on all the different phobias but what was your first phobia my first phobia are you referring to the doll my grandmother gave me as a child where the eyes moved or are i'm we talking i'm just asking what your first phobia ever was <laughs> okay um honestly it comes down to two one was sort of a uh, childhood more irrational fear and one really still kind of sticks with me today and it's something that i'm sort of dealing with a little bit um Okay, so I got a doll when I was a child, and my grandmother, love her, was probably so excited to give me this doll. It was one of those <laughs> China dolls where the eyes, when you stand it up and lay it down, the eyes blink. And looking back, what a sweet gift to give your granddaughter. Me, being the anxious little child I was, received this doll and freaked out because the eyes blinked. And, like, four-year-old me was like, that is not normal. And so my parents had to take the doll away and hide it in, I think it was like a storage closet or something for years. And looking back, honestly, I think that's a little bit creepier to just have this doll hiding in your storage closet as opposed to like the one where the eyes move. Like I'm trying to decide what's worse, having it out and making me play with it or <laughs> having it stuck in the storage closet for years. Well, I mean, I think what the distinction probably comes between like is it better to know what's coming or not know what's coming right very true very true because i mean on one hand you really don't want to see that thing but on the other hand how do you know it's not been plotting for like 15 years of how to take its revenge honestly i could make the new annabelle movie i never thought annabelle is really that scary are you are you someone who's afraid of annabelle um honestly not particularly. I Horror movies have never really scared me that much, especially after you shut them off. I've never been one to sort of dwell on them, if that makes any sense. Like, really? It's intense when it's on, but then once I turn the TV or shut my laptop off, I'm not still scared after that. Oh, God. I'm, the, I'm the complete opposite. I get oh, I don't yeah. get too freaked out during the movie, but afterwards it's like I check every, like, check the shower curtain, check, like, under the bed, like... <laughs> It just, it just fucks with you. And I think the huge thing is, like, I'm not worried about something running to my room and, like, stabbing me, but I'm scared that I'll see, like, something in my doorway and it'll just, like, stare at me. Yeah, I'm definitely more so than, like, the Annabelle ghost demon thing. I'm definitely a lot more scared of, like, horror movies like Midsummer. I haven't even seen that whole thing, and I, that was enough. I saw a couple clips of it, and that was enough for me to be like, okay, nope, we're clocking out here that is freaking terrifying because it's more realistic right like cults do exist whereas the chances of a little demon doll coming to find me are like basically zero are zero so yeah but what's the chance what's the chance of you getting like kidnapped or something by a cult also low but less than annabelle is what i think would this be a good time to segue and say that we're sponsored by the uh, Church of Scientology? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my god! I don't know what their slogan is, but I will look it up. Scam, scam, and scam some more. You betcha. 
Who knows? Uh, but if you're okay, if you're not afraid of horror movies, what about something like an urban legend? Like, do those get to you at all? I wouldn't say they get to me in a scary sense, although I do definitely enjoy a good campfire story. That, oh my god, I can 100% appreciate the whole atmosphere. That's amazing. But it's definitely something that I've been really, really fascinated by since I was a kid. So what are your uh, favorite urban legends then? Because you you more so, uh, I guess, lean towards the Irish ones? Yes, I have have an Irish background. I'm half Irish. My family is mainly from Cork. A lot of Canadians have Irish backgrounds, so that's not unique to me, but I definitely would recommend whatever your background is, sort of looking into the folklore, because it's amazing the things you find out. They're so fascinating and interesting. Um, I would say the one that scared me the most as a child had to be the legend of a banshee. Have you heard of those? I have not. Feel free to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so basically what a banshee is... Supposedly, every Irish family is assigned a banshee, and they're basically modeled after traditional Irish funerals. At traditional funerals, you would often have women who would be there, and they would do what's called keening. And so keening is also known as wailing, and it's sort of almost a sign of respect for the person who died or a sign of importance for people to be wailing at their funeral. Personally, I think I'm going to hire a few wailers when I die because, you know, I think (laughs) I want to show that I'm high status, right? No, I'm just... Kidding, or but... high out of your brains. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. No problem. But yeah, no, basically the legend of the Banshee, they're either depicted as a beautiful young woman or a very old witch looking hag. There's honestly no middle ground as there isn't in a lot of Irish folklore. <laughs> and so if you hear a Banshee scream, that basically means someone in the family is going to die. And so... Ever after I heard that legend, I was terrified of hearing a scream in the middle of the night. And the scariest part to me about this legend is you have no idea who it is or when. It's just like this sort of bad omen that you hear and somebody in your family or you is going to die soon. Did you ever like, have you ever heard like a scream in the night and got super freaked out about it or anything? Honestly, not that I can remember, but... Uh, it would not surprise me if me as a child heard it and was heard a noise, not even a scream, and was like, oh my god, that's the Banshee, they're coming for us, someone's gonna die. Especially because when I was little, I didn't make the distinction that the Banshees don't actually kill people, they just kind of, it's almost <laughs> like, don't shoot the messenger, they're just like, hey, someone's gonna die soon, it's, I'm not gonna do it, but just letting you know. So, yeah, um... That was pretty terrifying for me. So you thought it was a warning that the Banshee itself was going to kill you? Exactly. I thought they were just like a really polite murderer that was like, hey, I'm going to come and kill you in a couple days. Just thought I'd give you a heads up. I mean, that that raises an interesting question. Like, would you, do you want to know like when you're going to pass away? Is that oh, something God, you'd no. rather know or not know? That's something I would 100% not know. I know a lot of people get asked that question and they're like, mm, I don't know. I do not want to know because I, you know, it's. I prefer to just kind of live in that blissful ignorance of not knowing. How about you? Well, I mean, if, if they tell me that I'm never going to die, I mean, that would be quite appreciated. So I'd want to know that. But yeah. um, I think I think probably not because... 
simply because I think people react differently when they feel like they're running out of time, like they'll live life differently. Um, on, on one hand, I feel like it would be good because you get a chance to, you know, do what you want. But I've heard stories before where people have like stage four colon cancer or something. And it's like, okay, I'm going to die in three weeks. I'm going to do everything I've ever wanted to. And so they'll go on vacation, they'll, you know, hug their loved ones, they'll spend all their money, and then they find out that they don't have cancer. <laughs> oh my goodness, that would, the I can't even imagine the absolute relief and just the emotions that that person would go through. See, as I'm sure we'll touch on, I have horrible health anxiety, so just knowing that, I almost would rather not know. Because it's one of those things, I don't know how I'd react to that, like that's terrifying. <laughs> What? I mean, we're all going to die eventually, right? Really? Oh, I mean, so far we're immortal. <laughs> so yeah, I know what you mean. We, we haven't been proven wrong yet, but... Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, no, that's... I'm always the type of person who's like, you know what? I'd almost rather just not know and just go about my life as the usual. Okay, but wouldn't, wouldn't it mean that potentially... Okay, uh, no. You know what? No, I don't think there's any way in which you would appreciate knowing, like, the day you die. Because, I mean, if no. they told you, like, you die from getting hit by a car, then you could be like, oh, well, you know what? I'm not going to get lung cancer, so I can, like, smoke cigarettes, or I can do this, I can do this. But it doesn't tell you everything else. For all you know, you might end up with, like, a blood clot for doing something unhealthy. But that's not what's going to kill you, but it's going to make your life miserable, right? So... Gosh. Oh, there's so, welcome there's, everybody to this happy and light podcast. Yeah, I mean, there's so <laughs> many dimensions. There's so many dimensions to consider. I know. I mean, it would be different if it was like we're gonna tell you how you die, but you can change that if that makes any sense. Like you're gonna die from heart disease. Oh well, I better start eating healthier. You know what I mean? Okay. Like it would be definitely different. Or oh, you're gonna die in a car crash. Oh, well, I better be careful. But then I think I just get paranoid. <laughs> yeah, you'd never walk across the street again in your life. No, I'd live in my house. You get like an outstanding citizen award for never jaywalking, never fucking breaking the law. There we go. Hey, there's an award that comes out of that. Might be worth it. Maybe. Okay. You never, I mean, those look good on resumes, you know. You're really con concerned about having an award on your resume versus like your death day i mean potato potato right i think we need to look at priorities here but if, Very true. if anything okay let me let me ask you does this change it what if you had a book of your life like it maps out everything would you want to read it oh my god i don't know like that's i feel like i would like to read one about my past life so I can remember not past life as in like past lives I mean like stuff I've done in the past so that I could remember things that I would potentially forgot about in detail or you know if you forget something you can like turn to chapter three and find it but I don't <laughs> know if I'd want to read one that has like my whole life mapped out that is terrifying I, I just I think I agree with you I think of all the different like think of like back to the future right like if you read that tomorrow, you're going to, I don't know, break your arm by falling off the curb. You're not going to want to go outside. And then how much does that alter the other course of your life? Because maybe you 
fall off, break your arm, go go to the hospital, and then meet your like future husband or wife, right? Yeah, I feel like that would just be an ever-changing book. <sighs> that comes down to that, have you heard of like the butterfly theory? Yes, butterfly effect. Yeah, it's like the flutter of a butterfly's wings can have like catastrophic changes. Yeah, something like, uh, oh god, what was it? Oh, it was, it could create like a hurricane halfway across the world or something. Yeah, and honestly, I don't know if I believe it down to that specific, but I definitely think that small, tiny little actions can have a huge impact on your life and other lives. Well, it's it's the thing where it's like, at least for me, I think, there's been situations where I've been like late for something and it's been good because I've avoided certain things. And so I think, oh, well, what if I like went like 10 minutes earlier then this would have happened, right? But if mm -hmm. you think in that way, then you're, you'll really be put into like a decision paralysis type state, right? Because who says, oh, yeah. who says if you leave like 10 minutes earlier, it won't be worse or maybe the optimal time is five minutes. Maybe the optimal time is just not going at all. Like... <laughs> I mean, I think at some point, like, in order to have peace of mind, it there's definitely a calmness and being okay with uncertainty. That's something that I'm still trying to be okay with just in general is uncertainty. But I think everyone has to be okay with that just in order to, you know, live your life as best as you can. Well, I mean, how do you go about, like, I feel like I'm somewhat comfortable with uncertainty, but... Maybe not like a hundred percent, right? And oh, I, for sure. God, this goes into like the prehistoric idea of like a fear of the unknown, right? Because unknown yeah. and uncertainty goes the same way. So, I mean, for sure. Like, this is like a small example, but if you had told me like three years ago, it would be like we'd be in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I would have been like, "What are you talking about?" Like three years ago, that would have been insane to think about, but now it's the new normal. So it's just kind of, we don't always know what's coming up ahead, which is both scary and also it's almost better than knowing exactly what's coming up ahead. I think it'd be interesting to see, may, maybe not knowing the day you die, but knowing when you hit like your midlife crisis or something. Because it's like, for all you know, your midlife is like when you're 12 years old or your midlife is like when you're 60. Like, that would be so scary though. You just never know. If you can do basic math, you can just double your age and you'll know when you're going to die. Okay, but there's got to be a good way of doing it. Like, I don't know. we, we got to talk to God on this one. Set up an appointment. Figure out what we can do. Absolutely. But I think I'll uh, I'll share my favorite urban legends. Um, not exactly Irish. I'd definitely like to hear a couple more of those. But my oh, more... My more fall into more of the creepypasta range. I'm sure you've heard of those. Oh, I love those. So probably a little less uh, reputable than standard urban legends, but two of my favorites are one, uh, which is Polybius. And it's pretty much the idea that there was this like kind of blank arcade machine uh, left in a few areas of Portland. And it started like making kids sick. It started making kids like get headaches, almost like, making them have delusions and stuff and apparently like within like three weeks the arcade machines were taken away and there's so many like theories based off of it like maybe it was just you know a bad game by the manufacturer 
or maybe it was like you know the FBI trying to recruit people or something like smart kids right in the arcade because apparently there have been theories that our like FBI agents would go in and try and see like who the best players were and stuff like that so I've always found that interesting and then of course they've tackled on something where it's like there's this company that was supposed to be responsible for it but I mean like fell out and there hasn't been a trace of them in like 20 years or like 40 years or something so I feel like that ambiguity is always uh, really exciting when it comes to Urban Legends. And then I think the other one would have to be, uh, have you heard of Candle Cove? I have. Oh my god, I love that one. Oh, it's just, once again, that mystic stuff, right? Like the stuff that comes and goes away. Um, For those, I guess, unfamiliar, Candle Cove is supposed to be a TV show where it was like in Minnesota. uh, The premise of the story is people are talking about... um, the show on some forums and they're basically saying oh yeah i used to watch this as a kid oh you remember this pirate or whatever and as they're going through the messages it gets like more and more grotesque like do you remember when the pirate ran into the cage and like you know got attacked or the cave sorry and just it keeps getting darker and darker until one guy says you know i talked to my uh, mother in the hospital and asked her about the show i used to watch and i'm getting tingles right now but spoiler spoiler warning it's like the mother just goes like candle cove i remember you talking about that but whenever i came into the room oh god i'm getting goosebumps you're just watching static oh well that's a story that has like a genuinely good twist like some stories you read them and you can see it coming from a mile away but that one i was like whoa that is weird yeah they actually made a uh full-on tv series about that eh Really? Oh my god, I haven't heard of that. It's called Channel Zero. It's like six episodes based off of it. I would 100% recommend it. It's not the best, but it's a great way of moving the short story to the TV. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I have really mixed feelings about creepypasta stories, as I'm sure you do as well. It just depends on which one it is. But that one was one I was definitely like, oh my god, that is so creepy. It's a classic, right? I think it's one of the more reputable ones. And I think in a weird way, we can kind of relate to it in the sense that there's been different TV shows that I've watched as a kid and I've been like, does anybody else remember that? Or was that an absolute fever dream? I mean, not to the extent of it being like grotesque and I was watching Static, obviously, but (laughs) it was like, does anyone else remember Angela Anaconda or did I have like a really intense fever dream that... I'm the only one that remembers this. Well, I mean, one of the huge ones that people talk about is, uh, was it Berenstain Bears or Berenstain Bears? Oh, the Mandela Effect. Yep, Mandela Effect. Do you remember that? Like, what do do you remember it as? I always remembered it as Berenstain Bears. Okay, on the reverse, I always thought it was Berenstain. Now it's like I go back and see the books I had as a kid. It's like, wait, what? It's Berenstain? What happened? Yeah, maybe. I know, it's like, most of the time the Mandela effect does affect me, but I think for that one, because in the theme song, I didn't read the books as much as I watched the show, they very clearly say Berenstain Bears, and that's sort of what I remember it off of. Okay. Yeah, it's just, it's stuff like that, I feel like that's the most creepy aspect of these horror stories. Like, you can get slasher movies, and don't get me wrong, it's scary because of the blood gore and the idea of pursuit, but just the idea of like, you know oh my gosh, like, you were just watching Stag as a kid. It's just, it's so creepy. There's no, 
there's no identifiable like human motive or anything. And I think that's what makes it creepy. Absolutely. Honestly, I think some of the best horror movies are the ones that were made in like the 1930s and 40s. Like those, I think, are those are the ones I enjoy the most, mainly because since they didn't have as many effects and camera tricks, they had to rely on a really solid plot line. And I think that's where you get more of the goosebumps as opposed to the jump scare. Yeah, like you, I haven't seen a lot of them. I mean, I've seen uh, Haunting of Hill House, which we both love, but not the old version, obviously. But what are some of the older ones that really kind of hit that mark? Oh my gosh, I think, honestly, it had a really basic name. It was just called The Haunting or something like that. I'm really sorry if that's wrong. I'll let you know if I think of the actual name. Yeah. But it was basically this woman who was repeatedly being almost called to a house like she felt dwelled to go towards it which sounds similar to haunting a pill house yeah but it turns out there was this whole scandal with her mother being a ghost that was in there and i don't want to spoil it for anybody but it's so good it's really complex so i don't want to explain it badly on this um podcast and then kind of turn people off to it but i definitely recommend the next time your uh, grandparents have an old movie on i, I recommend paying attention because half the time they're really good <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people need to take inspiration because nowadays with the whole like, you know, wow, we can show you like 4K and I mean, just, you know, all the different effects and everything, you think that is so much better. But in reality, it feels like they've gotten lazier when it comes to more of the plot and story elements, right? Hmm. For sure. I yeah. mean, I don't think jump scares stick with people as much as really well-written scripts. It depends on the jump scare. If it's, sure. you know, one of those quick, like, cat runs across the screen, I don't think so, but I there's gotta... Oh, God, I can't... I, I mean, I guess you're right, because I can't think of any, like, huge jump scares, like, right now, but there's definitely those jump scares that always, like, stick with you. Like, I guess, spoiler warning, like, have you seen uh, Child's Play? I've seen, like, bits and pieces of it. I haven't watched it cohesively. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, when Chucky first like comes to life, that's a jump scare that sticks with you because you got like little subtle kind of not even jump scares, but just like that shouldn't be happening. And then the first jump scare you really get is when you know they're trying to take the batteries out of Chucky, and the mom just sits there and like says, "All right, fine, I'm throwing you in the fire," and Chucky just comes to life and goes crazy. Like that is something that sticks with you. So I that like it would stick with you. I think it did. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it depends on the emotional weight and really what is being encompassed by the jump scare. Oh, yeah, totally, for sure. What I almost remember even more from what I have seen of Child's Play is the moment when it, like, there's something to do with she was trying to find the batteries or something, and it just sort of zooms in on really dramatically the batteries that fall out of his box basically implying that he doesn't have them in and he's been moving and doing all of these things yeah it's a little bit more subtle but i definitely remember it more i didn't oh my gosh i didn't even think of that yeah i mean see it's 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 exposition versus like show me right and Mm -hmm. i think there, there's so much more power in show me because it, it leads you to come up with your own conclusions, right? Yeah, for sure. Like there, there's such a difference between, you know, seeing the batteries roll out and making that association yourself of, oh my gosh, he hasn't had those the entire time versus like, you know, pulling it off. It's like, oh, he hasn't had batteries. Like it, yeah. 
it's kind of in a way, I guess, treating your audience like they're intelligent versus like stupid. <laughs> oh, I, I think some of the best and most well-written TV shows, movies, really anything allow the audience to sort of draw their own conclusion. I mean, I'm not an expert in film or TV, so it's just my opinion, but I always love shows that can make you think and that can spark a really good debate. Honestly, it's not so spelled out for you that there's really only one conclusion. I really like having sort of a, this is what I took from this. And then you get a completely new perspective on it. If you talk to someone else. Well, are you more of like a passive watcher or an active watcher? Cause I think that makes the difference as well. It really depends. Like certain things, obviously I put them on if I'm like falling asleep or something, the comfort shows as they call them and that I can just sort of passively watch. But like a really compelling, I guess, film, I'm much more likely to active watch because it has a lot more subtle symbolism that you might not always pick up on, but at the same time, it's really, really interesting when you do. Yeah. So for something like Scooby-Doo, are you trying to solve the mystery before they tell you, or are you waiting for the big reveal for them to like kind of fill in the gaps? Oh, it's always a corrupt real estate agent. No, hey, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Oh, fair. Honestly, fair. This time the monsters are real. <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, I mean, to me, I'm just more of a passive TV watcher. So don't get me wrong. Like there are times where it's like I'll stop and I'll try to make a prediction. But for the most part, I just kind of wait for them to explain it, which from your from your perspective, it might seem like I'm cheating myself. <laughs> I mean, I don't necessarily think so. I don't think that there's one way to enjoy television. Like, if you enjoy, if that's what makes you like the show, I say go for it. Like, I'm not, I don't also, I also don't like people who are like, oh, if you're not actively paying attention, then don't bother watching it. Because I think any way that you're able to get enjoyment out of things made for entertainment, I think that that's the way you should watch it. But for certain films, I think that it is good to sort of pick up on that subtle symbolism a little bit more. Yeah. For sure. Um, does that kind of play a part in the urban legends then? I think so. I think the best ones are the ones where there's not really a clear ending and it sort of leaves it a little, it, this is a weird way of phrasing it, but it like leaves it to the imagination a bit because nothing that a writer can write, I feel like can come up with something scarier than what you're almost inferring yourself. Yeah. So I think ones that are left a little bit blank or a little bit open to interpretation, those are my favorite at least. Is it because I guess you pick out the thing that will be most scary to you? Probably. I think that must be it. It's like saying to a little kid, you know, you stop doing that or you're going to go into timeout or when I count to three, I'm coming up there. It's like, which one's more scary? <laughs> One where you don't 100% know what's going to happen. Well, I think this goes back to our, like the discussion we had before of like fear of uncertainty, right? Like they've had, uh, I'm sure you've seen the Halloween movies, right? I haven't actually. Okay. I need to watch those. Well, I mean, uh, not really a huge spoiler, but like when it was initially created, they just kind of saw Michael Myers as like the embodiment of evil. There was no motive or anything. And then there's these Rob Zombie movies made that were kind of reboots of it that were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he was abused as a child and, you know, grew up in a f bad family and stuff like that. So this is why he kills. And to me, that just kind of ruins the fear factor of it. I th I, oh, yeah. I, I think if anything, it's just the uncertainty is just so much more scary. 
Yeah, it's almost like less is more a little bit in terms of explanation. Like, I personally enjoy movies where I have to Google, like, this movie ending explained because, I don't know, it you tend to get a bunch of different results with a bunch of different answers, and then you kind of just, oh, it's not really meant to be fully explained right away. You're sort of meant to infer a little bit, which I definitely find the most compelling when it comes to watching movies or plays or TV. Yeah, I do. It's beautiful. I mean, the subjectivity of it, right? Like you could watch Mm -hmm. three different people's take on the movie. Like you said earlier, like the different perspectives, like you see three different people's take on the movies and you'll learn something new every time. So it's, uh, yeah, I think the openness and the ambiguity is really where it gets driven home. Oh, for sure. I think that's what the goosebump giver there. <laughs> now, like, what... even the ending Candle Cove, the static thing, it's like, why is there static? It doesn't quite cover that. Yeah, well, like, why was the TV show made? Why Why just these kids? Why Why can't adults? Like, it's there's just so much to it. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the Banshee thing, like, there's no real explanation for, like, where they came from, where they're going, something, something, con Joe, but... Uh... Yeah, it's like, are they good or are they evil or are they neutral? I mean, it's like they're not really actively doing anything to harm people. But at the same time, a lot of times they're depicted as these sort of like old witch sort of malevolent figures. But other times they're sort of more depicted as like mourning figures. So it's so open to interpretation. What about the other uh, Irish legends? Is there more like interpretation along those lines or is it more kind of close-ended? Oh, there's so many. Um, I think another one that's really good in terms of open to interpretate, open to interpretation <laughs> is the classic leprechaun, you know, like the guy in the box of Lucky Charms. Yeah. There's a story that goes with them. So they're known as tricksters. And I know like a lot of different cultures and a lot of different legends uses tricksters and they're sort of little fairies i think it really depends on which depiction you're going with but it's sort of they can be good if you're nice to them or they can be very very tricky and they can cause you a lot of pain and misery so the original story is a man who was working on a farm caught a leprechaun and basically said show me where your pot of gold is and so he's like okay sure and so he shows him to a tree and he's like, gold's under the tree. And the man's like, okay, so leprechauns are tricky. I'm going to tie a scarf around this tree. You better not move that scarf. I'm going to go get a shovel. And the leprechaun's like, yeah, no worries. I'm not going to move your scarf. It's all good. And the man comes back and every single tree in that forest has a red scarf tied around it. So was the leprechaun really not, was it really evil? I don't know. I mean, he was kind of robbed. Like... <laughs> If you think about it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that comes down to interpretation, but is there any like other stories about leprechauns where it's like they're just straight up malicious? Not that I've heard. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that thing on St. Patrick's Day where your teacher basically destroys the classroom and brings all the kids in and goes, look what a leprechaun did. And you're all like, oh my God, look what happened. And I don't know. Then we just clean up the classroom. Looking back, I don't know how that was fun for us. It was basically just cleaning up a mess we didn't make. But to me, it was just my school that did that. That first of all, that happened at a Catholic school. Oh yeah. Wow, that uh, that surprises me. No, we I can't say we ever had that. 
I think maybe that was more exciting for the teachers because they could, you know, like destroy the classroom and then have you guys all clean it up. I mean, just the pent up rage you could get out in making the uh, leprechauns mess. Why? I, I just, I don't understand why the teacher would do that. I mean, it was f like looking back, like now, of course, I look back at it and I'm like, oh my God, unnecessary cleanup. But as a child, it was fun, right? It was like, oh my God, look what happened. A leprechaun came in. And it was kind of like the Santa, like not to the same degree, but you know, it's like believing in Santa. It's like this thing that is sort of mysterious and magical came in and made a big mess. And then you clean up the mess, but the thing that sticks with you is the fact that a leprechaun came into your classroom, supposedly. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. We, we never had that. Something I do remember fondly in like the first grade is, have you ever heard of the lunch bag lizard? No, I haven't. Please tell me about so, that. It was like a story where this like lizard would come into the classroom and like steal your lunch or something. So I forget what we did in relation to it, but I remember like we did drawings of like, okay, here's how we can catch the lunch bag lizard. Like I glued like macaroni to the page. It's like, okay, we got them there. We got a net next to this. Once it goes for the macaroni, we're going to like squash it and like, you know, stop it. And then the teacher, I, I think the teacher even had it where her lunch bag was there before lunch. And once we got back from recess, her bag was gone. She's like, oh my God, the lunch bag lizard came. It's still my lunch. And so, I mean, something like that, like that gives you the same effect, but no one's cleaning up. I mean, honestly, first of all, I admire these strategic lunch bag lizard catching tactics. I think you Thank should you. definitely market that to the BuzzFeed Unsolved guys. Oh my god. But I love that show. <laughs> Me too. But yeah, like I think it's honestly just like you remember it, right? Like it's something that really sticks out to you. It's different than just your everyday mundane classroom thing. And I think teachers who go out of their way to sort of play on that sort of childhood wonder and the things that kids are able to believe in, I think that they ought to be commended, really. Yeah, and I mean it's it's just drawing on the imagination, right? <laughs> For sure. And the teachers I, who go out of their way and go the extra mile are appreciated. Oh, they're beloved. Um, I think, I, and if anything, I mean, kind of bring that back more so towards the horror talk. I mean, child's imagination is like a double-edged sword, right? Like on one hand, it's a fantastic, beautiful thing. But on the other hand, it's like, I think a lot of the ambiguity we talked about before, like when you're hearing it from a child's perspective, it's so freaky. Like, you know, oh, totally. it it might be a bear that the child's thinking of, but the child draws a picture of this, like, dark man, like, taking him away. Like, it looks like a ghost, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always that thing where you kind of believe kids, but also, like, things look so different to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when I was little, I was so... I'm sure we've all heard the uh, sleepover story of Bloody Mary. We've all yeah, been through that. Of course. Absolute nightmare that was that story. Oh my god, I was so scared of that. I remember this one time my friend came over to my house and we got it in our heads that we were going to play that game and it was all fun and games until nighttime came and then we were both so scared that we had to, I think we ended up putting my mirror in the closet or something because we were sure <laughs> she was coming for us. I remember like not using the bathroom all night long and like waking up in absolute agony because I was afraid she was going to come out of the mirror. So, yeah, I can definitely see our imagination can work against you sometimes. Why was Bloody Mary always the major one? 
because I, I definitely heard about that when I was in like grade three, grade four. Like apparently you did too. Like why is Bloody okay. Mary like one of the most common ones? I don't know. I think because it's interactive as in you have to like summon this ghost supposedly. I guess. I mean, thankfully um, it's relatively harmless, right? Like for those uninitiated. Bloody Mary is basically the idea that if you spin three times and say Bloody Mary in front of a mirror, like, what is it, this ghost will come out, Bloody Mary, kill you? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different, like, supposed rules to it. Like, you say spin three times, I've heard, like, you have to hold a candle or a flashlight under your chin and say it 13 times. 13? So it was really all over, yeah, it was really all over the place. My friend was like, oh no, you have to flush the toilet. <laughs> it really depends. God, they made you work for it. <laughs> kidding it's like ma'am can you just come here please i'm working like i want to catch a ghost on camera okay please my 12 year old self 12 i was more like eight is really begging you clout was a whole lot harder to get back in the day i guess right dang wow i mean if if anything i i guess nowadays it's more so like the bloody tide pod or something <laughs> oh my <laughs> god they, i mean think of it make that up? yeah <laughs> Well, th think about it. It's like, you know, for putting it under your chin and saying Bloody Mary 13 times is pretty harmless, but the type of shit challenges they got now, like eat a Tide Pod, it's like, oh my god. Like, did you have that yeah. shit back in the day? What, Tide Pods? No, like we, there's, the one I remember was like the Cinnamon Challenge or like Chubby Bunny, but. Oh yeah, I mean, Chubby Bunny, that was fairly harmless the cinnamon challenge has literally sent people to the er so disclaimer don't do that please yeah but i mean i i feel like we didn't have like the condom challenge or the tide pod challenge or all the shit what? that tiktok is making popular it's... wait what that's so i don't even have a response for that that is yeah, so messed up just tasteless no kidding wow but i mean now we have like everyone coming up with their own challenges and with the internet, I mean, we're now a global community, right? So, Yeah, I mean, was Bloody Mary really a challenge? Or was it more just like a kid's game? Like, I always saw that as more of just like a sleepover game. Okay, how do you win Bloody Mary? <laughs> you either get killed or you don't. I don't know what's winning, because if, if... Yeah, that's a good question. It's like... It's not really a game. Just seeing her and having her come and kill you, do you win? Or... Like, it doesn't sound like winning to me. No. Honestly. The things we used to do to entertain ourselves, it's actually hilarious. I mean, I, I, I remember... Th Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I remember in theater class, for whatever reason, we got it in our head, we were all going to do the Charlie Charlie challenge. Have you heard of that? It's no. like So basically, you supposedly make like a yes-no grid on a paper and put two pencils, and the pencils supposedly turn to... <laughs> what this ghost's answer is and it was like this whole big thing we were all so freaked out like like every kid hasn't gone through the phase of thinking the school was haunted or something yep, like that for sure oh you went through that too yeah so i mean charlie charlie's more like a ouija board then right something like that was there any actual interesting results or is it just people like fucking with each other I mean, we were kind of entering, like, teenage when we were doing that, so it was a little bit more, like, we weren't actually, we weren't freaked out like we were when we were kids so much. Like, we were sort of just, like, messing with each other, but, yeah, I remember some people were legitimately like, guys, stop, you're gonna summon something, and I was like, um, I don't think we are with 
pencils and school paper if it was that easy <laughs> to get sent home. Dude, <laughs> you'd be living at ghoul school at that point. Oh gosh. But there's there's some type of beauty to that, right? Like just I, I I've asked so many people like, hey, would you do a Ouija board with me? And they're like, you know what, I would, but I won't do it in my own house because even though they don't really believe in the idea that there's ghosts in there, like they're still a little hesitant. And it, ju it just, it just, sorry, go ahead. No, keep finishing. I was just going to say, it just really shows you like, you never really grow out of that. Like you, you might be a hundred, like 99% confident, but in the end, you've still got that hesitancy. You still know that there's that possibility that you get told like that you're going to die or that this ghost is going to come out of the board. Honestly, I'm a huge skeptic. I think that's because I was raised by a couple of skeptics. If you ever want to do a Ouija board, we can do it at my place. That's fine. Oh, hell yeah. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like it'd be so boring, though. I feel like you just do it for like 10 minutes and then it just, that's it. I mean, I don't know. I've seen like, I, I hate to like rain on everyone's parade who enjoys these things, but I've seen a lot of like debunk videos where it's like, if you do it with your eyes closed, it's amazing how it just spells out gibberish because you're like, subconsciously making it spell things without even like trying so a lot of people are like i wasn't pushing it what are you talking about well subconsciously you kind of were yeah yeah i mean it's oh god don't ruin it come I'm on it's so much not fun. trying to be that person you know what i take it back ouija boards are real they totally spell out creepy shit go for it go wild can i quote you on that now please do please do beautiful um but yeah no i mean it's it's just an element of fun right like you oh, can go sure. through life just saying you know none of this is real like you know what like we only go by science but there's just so much fascination so much like i, I just get giddy thinking about that type of stuff i know have you ever been on a ghost walk yeah i love those oh say um around my area there's this place called castle kilbride and it's this old like house that was built i forget when but it's quite old it's honestly gorgeous on the inside like i would totally love to have an event like have any type of event there i'd love to live there honestly it's so pretty but it was just really cool getting to learn about the history of the place and getting to hear all the creepy ghost stories even though i don't necessarily believe them all i've tried my best to at least be open-minded because i feel like if you go through like this is all bullshit well you're not going to get anything out of it I could probably apply that to my university education. <laughs> Very true. You can apply that to most things in life, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Like, the ghost walk I went on, it's the it, just the history of it, knowing that, you know, there's the potential for it, even though you know, like, yeah, this probably isn't real, but just everyone loves, every, everyone is enamored by narratives. Everything in life is a narrative. Like, that's that's where we get our enjoyment, right? Yeah, that's rather philosophical, by the way. Everything in life is a narrative. I mean, I don't think you're wrong there. Well, think about it. Do you, do you enjoy the building just because of the building, or did you enjoy it because of the history and the ghost story? That is very true. I mean, it was aesthetically pleasing to look at, but at the same time, like, you can't help but picture, like, all of the parties that went on in there, all of the, you know, the discussions that people had hundreds of years ago in yeah. that room and you could even go something more simple like think of like how like coke has been 
really uh, pushing the narrative. Like, you're not drinking a Coca-Cola. You're sitting there and, you know, enjoying it with family, like, outside on a nice sunny day, like, with your siblings and, you know, like, on a beach. Like, they set up this picturesque feel so that it's not just a product. It's an experience. (laughs) Totally. Oh, my God. I totally agree with that. I thought you meant, like, crack when you said Coke. I'm like, what? how did this come from? Yeah, you know, just to Coke. on the beach with your family. Like, just oh, yeah. what a great experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Totally. It's everything is controlled by narratives. And, I mean, I, I think in a way, maybe not 100%, but I think narratives might kind of lead into some of my health anxiety. I know I have pretty huge health anxiety. I think you said you did too, right? That was actually, I don't think I ever got to that. My other phobia that wasn't the doll. My, yeah, anything health related is very, it's a lot for me. So what's it like for you? Because I think I've got a pretty stereotypical, like, I'll get a cough and then I'll like look up online like, oh, what could this be? It's like, I've got cancer. And then for two weeks, I'll be worried about it. It Mine honestly doesn't sound that different. I mean, okay, tip number one. Don't go on WebMD. I mean, I'm a huge hypocrite for even telling you that because I'm constantly doing that. I should not be, and I'm trying my best not to. But yeah, I mean, for someone who is both very germaphobic as well as very, very health anxious, it can be really scary. It's like, okay, this headache that I have, I mean, it could be a migraine or it could be a brain tumor. Like, I mean, I think more people struggle with that than is talked about, as with most mental health things. I think more people suffer from it than people talk about. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I think one of the components I have is like guilt associated with it. Like I sat there and this is so embarrassing, but there was like back in my first year of university, there was like a week where we went out partying a couple of times and there was a friend in the group who smoked, so I had a couple cigarettes, and by the end of the week, I was, like, so worried that, like, I looked into my mouth, I saw, like, a bit of, like, phlegm or something, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, did I give myself lung cancer? And I actually went to the walking clinic and waited two hours to get a confirmation that I didn't. Oh my gosh. See, I don't, because I am so health conscious, I don't do a lot of things to that could jeopardize my health. So I don't necessarily feel the guilt of that, but I totally understand what you mean by that. It's like, you need that reassurance, right? Like you have to, I've called telehealth nurses before and been like, so this stomach ache, do you think it's appendicitis or do you think it's just a stomach ache? Like (laughs) it really does depend on what it is. And it can be, the smallest little symptoms can turn into absolute worst case scenario. So I don't know, something that really helps me a lot and I'm trying my best to do it more. It's still really difficult, but I'm doing my best is to look at the probable versus what's actually, what could happen. So it's like, okay, let's look at a headache. I'm sort of prone to migraines. They tend to run in my family. It's gonna rain tomorrow and I do get weather headaches. So the chances of this being a headache are looking pretty good compared to a brain tumor, right? So. It's really hard to do that, but that's usually what I recommend. Is that something that you kind of came up yourself, or did you, like, learn it from someone who also has health anxiety, or...? No, I mean, there's no shame in therapy, so I'll just say I learned it from my therapist who helps me with my health anxiety. Um, Something else that she told me that honestly stuck with me more than what 
I think anyone else who's ever tried to help me has said is I was just telling her I was so scared of, you know, the whole COVID that we're living in right now. Yeah. I was so afraid of it. And I was saying, you know, what if there's all these, I get it. And there's all these crazy side effects and which could have, like, I'm not trying to downplay COVID in any way. Absolutely not. But she sort of said to me, and is that happening to you right now? And I said, no. So she's like, you're trying to solve a problem that isn't happening to you right now. So why not wait and see if that problem actually happens before you try and solve it? And that just really made a lot of sense. It's like, huh, you know, like I don't have a, any symptoms. Like there's a pretty good indicator I don't have COVID because I don't have any symptoms at all. I feel completely fine. Again, yeah. not trying to say that asymptomatic COVID doesn't happen. But it's sort of just the whole overarching theme of not trying to solve problems that aren't actually happening. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a, it's a coping style, I think. Like, I, uh-huh. before I got dry eyes, I had been getting sore eyes for, like, a couple of days. And I, gosh, that might have been one of the most uh, depressing points in my life. I convinced myself really? I had a dry eye disorder. Because I was saying, I was thinking like, oh, I can never like watch a movie again. I can never do that. Like I planned for worst case scenario. I actually planned to yeah. do a podcast at that point. I'd never done it before that point. I just thought, you know what? I'll have to quit streaming. I'll have to start podcasting. But this is how we'll do it. And then of course, like I actually get diagnosed with it. So I talked to someone about it, and they thought maybe that's kind of your way of coping, right? Like you plan for the problem in advance. Like instead of getting notice of the news and then going through like that denial, bargaining, blah, 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 like all the way through the grief cycle, I start prematurely, which yeah, totally. in a way is kind of a coping mechanism, right? That is, I 100% see what you mean there. I mean, I think that just goes to show, like, did that help you a lot when you yeah, heard that I, from Yeah, I wasn't upset afterwards. I was like, upset for a few like terribly upset for a few days before i even got diagnosed but after i got diagnosed it's like all right we're good to go like it was bad for a couple days after but it wasn't i don't think it was as bad as if i didn't do it beforehand yeah and i mean i think that that just kind of shows both the merit in talking to people especially therapists i mean i'm so glad that that sort of is sort of it's not entirely gone away but it's definitely improved a lot i think And it can be so helpful just to get that objective point of view. Like when she said to me, now, is this actually happening or are you trying to solve something that's not happening? It was like, oh, like I never, that never even occurred to me, which is surprising, but it was like, oh my, like this isn't happening and I'm solving a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah. Do you think there's, do you think there's almost an advantage in trying to solve that problem that doesn't exist? I mean, I think we, a lot of people, especially anxious people, feel like they need to be prepared for everything all the time. And I think that that doesn't always benefit you mentally because you're always on high alert. True. Like preparing for the next disaster that may never happen. Yeah. So I I think that there's definitely, like, especially when it comes to things like diseases during this time, taking precautions are definitely, definitely necessary. But at the same time, keeping it in that perspective. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, you know, I, I, in a way, I think it could be beneficial. But for the most part, I mean, with the added stress it gives you, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> exactly. It's. I mean, it's always good to be prepared. I'll never not think that. And I'll never stop trying to be prepared for everything. I think that's just kind of in me. But I think just 
also kind of keeping that perspective of okay let's look at the likely outcome of this well i think i think the big thing is just maybe not worry about it but one of the quotes i heard literally probably about a few days ago that really stuck with me is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it's it's so much easier to just not do whatever it is that would hurt you or you know like you know, brush your like brush your teeth twice a day so that you're not gonna end up with trying to resolve your gum issues like later on in life or whatever, right? Right. So it's 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 so true. I mean it's so much harder to deal with something once it's already happening rather than, you know, to try and prevent it. So Oh yeah, totally. And I think that you definitely need that balance. Like I think it's kind of to try and find like, okay, I need to be careful. Like I'm definitely not saying be reckless and just ignore things that are there. But at the same time, trying to, like, I, I think it just all comes back to perspective. It really does just sort of getting that kind of objective. Okay, let's just rationalize this a little bit before jumping to the worst case scenario, which I still struggle with doing, but I'm working on it. Oh, me too. And I mean, I think we're all guilty of it, right? But oh, totally. I think there's maybe something to be said about an OCD type influence. I mean, it from what I've heard, at least in my own experiences and other people's experiences, just the fact that there's that whole, like, I've got this thing, I need reassurance that, because it's all about compulsions and, uh, fuck, OCD, also obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, just the obsession aspect of it, uh, having those compulsions, like asking for the reassurance. And then that compulsion over time just becomes less and less effective. So you need to like repeat it over and over. Like, I'm sure, like, you know, the first time when you get told, like, yeah, you don't have a, you know, appendicitis or whatever, you're like, oh, cool. But then as you go through, like, you know, it gets more and more and you need to ask, like, more and more often, right? Absolutely, for sure. And I think just one of the main things I'm trying to work on is trying to find that reassurance a little bit more in myself. So I'm not constantly being like, okay, I need to find it with someone else. It's like, okay. I can analyze these symptoms on my own and I can make that judgment call of, is this appendicitis or am I just sort of applying symptoms that aren't there? And I think that's sort of a key to at least getting a bit better in terms of, you know, needing that constant reassurance. That's actually pretty interesting because I, I have a different take on it. I kind of dealt with an OCD episode a few years ago and completely unrelated to health or whatever but the way that really solved it for me was just accepting that I guess accepting the ambiguity like okay this could be the case if it happens it happens if not whatever like yeah it could happen just it, because there, there's such a resistance to avoid whatever it is you're obsessing about but just acknowledging that oh you know what it could happen I think it takes away a lot like you're not trying to defend yourself anymore right like the yeah. idea between the obsession and the compulsion is like kind of a struggle a fight between like this could happen if i do this it won't happen but just accepting that it could happen takes away the struggle itself and relieves a lot of the stress so that's For been sure. i think that's go sorry yeah i was gonna say that's been kind of my way of dealing with it but i know it won't work for everyone right of course not. I mean, I definitely can see merit in that for sure. It's like just sort of being like, okay, that might happen. And if that does happen, I'll be able to use my problem solving skills and sort of work through it that way. But yeah, that's, it's definitely hard to get to that point. I think where you're like, okay, this might happen. 
and I'll be okay. Like, I think that definitely takes a lot of work, for sure, as most mental health things do. They all require a lot, a lot of work. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it's not something that can be taken easily, right? Oh, like... of course not. We get into patterns so easily of ways of, okay, like, okay, I feel some sort of symptom and automatically your brain is so used to going to, this is probably something terminal that I'm never going to be able to get over. And that, at least in my experience, that has never been the case. So sort of analyzing, okay, I tend to go to the worst case scenario and that hasn't happened yet. I'd say that's pretty good advice then. Do you have anything else to kind of touch on then or are you good for this? I mean, I'm not an expert, so I definitely don't want to be giving out (laughs) advice and saying like, oh, you should definitely do this because I'm not a therapist. But one thing I will say is I would recommend reaching out to one. If anyone is struggling, it's so, so helpful even just to talk to someone. So I would definitely recommend that completely agree i would also say that even if you aren't struggling with anything i think it's a good opportunity to reach out to a therapist if you can you know afford it or have the means to i think even twice a year checkup i i am an advocate for annual mental health checkups because even if something's not like in super serious like they're still really talking to a therapist is like talking into a mirror they just kind of guide your thoughts so there's a lot of stuff you can discover even if you're seeing a therapist not over like you know anxiety or depression or whatever you can learn a lot of stuff about yourself so yeah can't can't recommend that no of course shall we move on to uh something lighter then yeah i think that would be a good thing if we're gonna end (laughs) we're gonna end on a note that's not um completely dark we've covered uh would you how would you like to know how you die um (laughs) health anxieties let's move on to something fun all right well you're well you know what maybe this won't be some fun for some people because you know people have social anxiety but uh theater (laughs) theater is something we've both done you love theater you're trying to convince me to join our university's theater uh club experience i am totally yeah i almost plugged it there but i won't (laughs) please don't is it a theater team (laughs) club um, either one. I like team, you know. I've never thought of theater kids as on a team, but that's really what it is. Yeah. So I guess kind of the, what we're trying to tackle now is like, why is it worth it to get into theater? Like, why should you get into theater? Either like as an actor or doing background stuff or whatever. Oh, there are so many reasons. I mean, of course, all of this is incredibly biased. This is coming from <laughs> someone who has always really loved theater. Basically, I got into it this is going i was at a church potluck which is a very strange place to have your theater journey sort of start but i remember i was at this church potluck and a bunch of the kids in the youth group were gonna put on a play and i wasn't old enough to join the youth group yet so i wasn't in this play but i saw that they were putting one on and i was high-key pissed that i wasn't told there was going to be a play (laughs) like i loved it and everyone loved it and i was like what i didn't know we were doing this like why didn't i sign up why can't i be in it and so the next year, I made damn sure to sign up for this play, and I had so much fun doing it, and I, it was like this instant click of, okay, this is, I love this, I need to be doing this, it's so much fun. And it just kind of kept spiraling from there, like I really enjoyed, I, we did a play in like I think grade four or something like that, and I immediately went home and learned all my lines, my homework was neglected a little bit, let's be honest, <laughs> from that. Yeah. But, <laughs> I was so into it. I was so mad when the other kids weren't as, like, into it. I'm like, 
come on guys, we we gotta make a good show. It's gotta be perfect. Um, thankfully that perspective has changed a little bit because I think there is some beauty and imperfection in theater. Yeah, 100%. for sure. Yeah, and then high school, that's when I think I enjoyed it, the, or got mo most into it. Because when I started grade nine, I wasn't in a theater group. I wasn't in any place. And let's be honest, I did not like grade nine. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Grade nine kind of sucks. Really? I promise it gets better. Yeah, I was not crazy about it. Maybe it's just, again, my opinion, but eh. it's. I feel like it's a big adjustment year. Yeah, no, I'd agree with you on that, but teach their own. But And then the next year I did theater and I was like, these are my friends. Like that's where all my friends were pretty much. And I loved it ever since for sure. So what do you think would be a good reason for people to get into it? Like, I guess I'll, uh, I'll share my perspective on it. I, sure. uh, I, I wasn't really typically a theater kid like you. I, uh, in grade 12, I realized I needed to start doing something else, like actually extracurricular. I've been doing good in my classes, but I haven't really done anything besides that. So I ended up uh, joining the play as an extra. And then oh, cool. in my year off between high school and university, I ended up coming back and writing and directing a play. So I got kind of the other end of that too. And for me, I just, I think the enjoyment of it comes in really the social aspect and I think it's just fun to see kind of a project through to the end, right? Like a play is not, yeah. we do it in two weeks. It's you spend like three months preparing, grinding, and just opening night is just so satisfying to see it all pay off. Oh, it's so satisfying. I mean, that's so cool. First of all, that you wrote and directed a play. I have not had any experience with that. So like bravo to you. That's really, really good. Um, that would definitely be a... I, would, do you find that would be more stressful than the acting portion of it? I feel like it probably would be. Um, I wasn't actually an actor. I was just a background character. So I got to do like a fight scene or whatever. We actually we actually got trained on the dude who was stunt coordinator for Designated Survivor. If you know that TV show. I don't actually. It's just... It was like a political drama or something. But he's done a okay. lot of stuff so it was pretty cool to get his uh perspective and teachings on that but overall um i guess a little more stressful but not really i mean it just a lot of it felt really chill obviously there's times where you gotta buckle down but in some respects you guys kind of felt like a family right oh a hundred percent that i think that was honestly the best part about it like if i can give people one reason to join it's the people that you meet like a lot of and a lot of people think you have to be a certain type of extroverted personality to be able to do things like this. There really is something for everyone. Like we had tons of people who worked on costumes. We had people who were doing hair and makeup. We had people who were doing lighting. We had people who were doing sound. It takes a it really takes a village, let's be honest. Yeah. Like it is a massive production. I mean, and the adrenaline you get when you're doing the actual play and people are reacting to it. You would be surprised what a good audience does for a play. Like, I've been in plays where you come off stage and you're just feeling absolutely terrible because you didn't get one laugh and you <laughs> thought all the parts they would have liked, they didn't like, and you come off and you're like, well, good job, guys, but that was not our best. And then you talk to people and they liked it, but they just weren't as, I guess, explicitly reactive. And then you get an audience that totally is, like, loud and reacting and... 
Honestly, I don't know if it's proper theater etiquette, but it feels so much better than that terrifying silence that you sometimes get when you're doing plays. I would agree with you. I think having, I mean, it's, it's reassurance, right? It's, you know, okay. They laughed when I made this joke. It's, can you imagine being a stand-up comedian and having more of that? Like, oh yeah, I found it funny. I just, you know, didn't laugh at the time. Like you would think that you're bombing the entire time. And that just brings your whole mood down. And I think, honestly, it brings your performance down. Like, you have to try so hard not to let it. But there's only so much. Like, you're human, right? There's only so yeah. much you can take before you're like, this is not going well. well. And, yeah, we've had plays that, not just in my opinion, that did not go well. And they were experiences, right? Like, we all came out okay, and we did better on the next one. I think it's it's all about trial and error, right? Like, I For thought... Sure. and. It's, it's all a work in progress. Like for the script I wrote, I wrote a rough draft and that was supposed to be the one we were going to go with. But I think it went through like five or six or even seven different rewrites by the end of it. Like there was just so many changes made and it was so bare bones. Like we had someone like draw a sky and then we taped, <laughs> we taped it to like the window and there's so many, it fell so many times. Like it was just like fucking, uh, I don't know. Uh, the only way I can describe it is like the New Brunswick of, uh, I don't know, like it, it was just a ratty play. It was fun, like it it got the laughs, like the beats were good, but it was just yeah. kind of a Rat Pack effort, right? Like, and I feel like those are some of the best times. Like, like like you said before, the what was it? Um, just sitting there and having a play go perfectly sometimes isn't as satisfying as some of those imperfections, right? Oh, totally. They're definitely not. Like, you would be surprised how okay audiences are with imperfections, depending on how you react to them. Yeah. If you get upset and, like, look all anxious about it, the audience is going to be like, oh, that's awkward. What do we do? But if you kind of just laugh it off and play it up, and sometimes that we would even, like, ham it up a little bit, they that energy is so infectious that they're going to love it. So I think people focus way too much on perfection when that's an illusion. Like, there's no such thing as perfection. Okay, I have to ask. I go on yes. to what was the best imperfection you've ever seen? Oh my gosh, there are so many that went on on stage. Uh, oh. Okay, you go first, and by the time you're done, I'll think of mine. Okay, so for mine, I've told you this before, haven't told the Graves cast. I did a soap opera version of Little Red Riding Hood. So instead of the typical story, it was the idea that the wolf was like married to the grandma and then ran away. Like he was this kind of suave, like fifties, like man, man kind of figure. And then the woodcutter was like meant to be this like bad guy who was trying to take grandma for all of her money. Uh, the like little red riding hood was just like a badass bitch. You had um, the mom who's more like a serene, like yoga type person who was Oh yeah, the the wolf no, not the wolf. The woodcutter is taking advantage because she was dating. He was dating both the grandma and the mom, like a polygamist type thing, but they didn't know. And so there was just a bunch of shit. But one of the funniest lines, I I wanted to change it just to make it funny, but of course it was such a bad idea. It was obviously you have like oh what big eyes do you have, what big teeth you have, and so the response to what big teeth you have, the wolf was supposed to say all the better to eat you with. And a running joke kind of backstage was like the line was supposed to be all the, <laughs> all the better to eat you out with. And oh my God. yeah, so we did it in rehearsals. It's just fucking funny. Like obviously the 
kind of the one above me was like, yeah, you are not doing this. It's like, all right, all right, fine. And then when it came by to kind of run like a, I guess a trial version to give people a sneak peek of what it was, we ran that scene in front of the school. And by accident, the guy who played the wolf said the line. And of course, the principal was watching and it was just, oh, I howled so hard. It was so funny. Oh, now that you say that, I have, thankfully, okay, I have a really bad almost like screw up. And then I have one where the play was just like so low budget, but the energy just, it was great. Yeah. So I'm sure if you worked with like high school mics, they're obviously not Broadway microphones. Like we do not have that kind of budget. We are on a tight budget. So it's not unusual for the microphones to sometimes come off and on, even if you're not on stage or even close to a senior and they sometimes come on. And so a bunch of actors during a production thought it would be funny to have a contest of who can scream penis the loudest. <laughs> back, like back in like the break room, it wasn't meant to be like, you know, part of the show. This was in no way meant to go on. But like, thank God none of those mics popped on. There's been a couple instances where the mics have turned on and somebody's dropped something and you just hear, oh shit, like backstage. And <laughs> the audience is like, what is going on in this? Like, uh. and then of course afterwards, <laughs> no the um administrators aren't thrilled with you because you've been like you forget that people can listen over your headsets and hear exactly what's going on so a little bit awkward there a little bit of a very close save i think the production was like beauty and the beast or something where there's obviously like a bunch of children and like thank god that did not happen yeah i'd say so can't even imagine how bad that would have been what was the sorry go ahead i was just gonna say um, the play that sticks out to me from my high school, or not even, just a play that I was in, to this day, it goes down as, like, one of my favorites. And it's not meant to be at all, I guess, controversial. We did um, Election Day, the musical. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. First, of, just disclaimer, this was back in 2016, so it wasn't quite as... Things weren't as polarized, I don't think, in 2016. So we decided we were going to write a election day musical based off of the 2016 election. It was in no way meant to be offensive or anything like that. We honestly, it was kind of like what SNL does. Like we sort of were taking that sort of vibe. Yeah. We wanted it to just be like satire, like a political cartoon. That yeah. was really what we were aiming for. Um, needless to say, our, one of our administrators was like, what are you doing? This is going to be performed. And thankfully he was at least nice enough. He's like, I'm not saying no, but I want to see it first. Yeah. And so we showed him and he looked over the script and was like, okay, we're going to take that out. We're going to take, basically made it so that, cause like, to be fair, that he didn't want that reflecting badly on the school, which yeah. totally understand that. Like, I wouldn't want that reflecting badly on the school either. But the whole thing was just an absolute train wreck, but in the best possible way. So low budget. So nobody could sing. We could not sing. We were not singers. We could not dance. But it was just so much fun because we had so much energy with it and the audience really fed off of that. A lot of the jokes were based on what was currently happening. So 
yeah, I think everyone... At one point, Anderson Cooper busted into Bohemian Rhapsody. And, <laughs> it was just an absolute mess, but it was really just like an SNL political satire. It was just meant to be funny. And that, I think, was honestly one of my favorite productions that I've been in. Did you guys write any of the songs for it? Oh, did we write? We had... Um, don't rain on my campaign <laughs> don't rain on my parade bernie sanders came out and saying it's the most horrible time in the year of the year yeah. based on a uh, popular christmas song pretty sure canada made an appearance and did a high school musical number oh my yeah, god it, it sounds like a fever dream but it was fun and yeah it was just a good time like i said it was back in 2016 so a lot of stuff hadn't happened yet and yeah it was one of my favorites. Did you guys have anything about the Hillary Clinton emails? Because I feel like that'd be hilarious. Oh, yeah. Anderson Cooper. Like, during the debate that was done in the style of Bohemian Rhapsody, there was, like, basically, we were making, like, we were making fun of everybody, right? So That's the best kind. So, yeah. We, actually, it was unkind to everyone. We were basically just making fun of the entire thing. And, yeah, I'm... it was... It was a good time. Wasn't it? It was pretty much a complete joke, though. I mean, like, you had Hillary Clinton being like, oh, go Pokemon, go to the polls. And, you know, fucking Trump being like, oh, you know, you need to check Hillary Clinton's emails. And just the entire thing was a shit show. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if we would have tried that in light of the four years that happened, to be honest. I don't know if that would have been appropriate. But in terms of the 20, we were like 16 year old kids. We well, I'll be honest with you, we didn't know that much about politics. We didn't we weren't trying to make much of a statement. We were just wanting to make a parody that was funny and in my unprofessional opinion, I think we accomplished that. I think if anything it's I I, I don't think it's a case of you couldn't do it today. I think it's a case of there's not really a lot of humor in it nowadays, right? Like what what would I think you it would be more sad? <laughs> like <laughs> you're you're gonna do a real like dramatic play, like one of those tra yeah. it'll be literally a Shakespearean tragedy. <laughs> oh my god, don't give me ideas for that might end up happening. Okay, if you had to do a second version of the play, what would make it in? Oh boy. That is such a good question that I don't even know if I can cover in this podcast. Funny thing is I actually got in touch with that group like recently and I was like, we really should have done a sequel and they were all like, Oh my god, we should have. So yeah, I mean, I. it's hard to say. I think that there are some things that should not be made fun of, and I think there are some things that kind of could. It's. I feel like there's more of a line there, if that makes any sense. More of a line? Like, there's. you have to be a little more careful. Um, no, I guess in certain regards, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, back for the original, there's some parts where, you know, you'd have to stay pretty uh, tame as well. Like well, none of those... that's the thing. Like... Sorry? I was just going to say, like, none of those, like, grab me by the pee, right? Like. Oh, no, no. <laughs> but assuming you stay away from that stuff, I think there shouldn't be any issue with doing it nowadays. I mean, I don't know about your take, but I feel like, for the most part, anything can be joked about as long as it's not done in a super tasteless fashion. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, like I said, we were just trying to make, like, we were basically, SNL did it, and we were just trying to do something, some parody that was funny, that was sort of 
we had put our little disclaimer at the beginning, like the following is strictly for your entertainment. Please don't essentially, please don't call the school and complain. We <laughs> promise this whole thing is just a joke. Our principal had nothing to do with this. We swear don't call and yell at him. So yeah, like, and it was mostly family and friends anyway. So everyone just kind of had a good laugh about it and nobody was angry backstage regardless of what they were, what their political beliefs were nobody was upset with us so i'd call that a win really i would what was the uh, reception and what was your favorite part of it okay my favorite part of it i honestly think the number i wrote which was the canada high school musical number that was a good time and the reception i mean people really liked it from what i heard i mean of course, your friends and family aren't going to be like, that was terrible. <laughs> but I think the fact that we were all just willing to, this is going to be an absolute shit show, but in the funniest possible way. Nobody, you know, stuff went wrong and we couldn't stay on time and we couldn't dance. Nobody cared. They were all just in it for, like, the jokes. And it was just a good, lighthearted time because there was no gravity to it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm all for doing plays where you really want to make sure it's good and you want to do your absolute best, but... Snoops is just fun to get on stage and be like, this is absolute jokes. Please laugh. <laughs> yeah, I think those are the best. I don't... I mean, you look at the difference. It's like you see something like Endgame where it's like it's super polished, something everyone's been looking for, and they find, you know, that certain type of enjoyment in it. Whereas you see something like... You probably haven't seen Clerks, but it's kind oh. of just a... Wait, have you? No, I'm thinking of Monty Python as a good example, too. Clerks is just a kind of... I guess a drama like in the life of like two variety store workers it's in black and white it was made for $25,000 and it's just it's good social commentary and it's it's something where it's like you can tell it's low budget it's like there's nothing spent over like a dime on it but it's still it's very memorable and I think oh, those to me are sure. more memorable than a lot of the polished pieces sometimes a bad play is a lot better than a boring one <laughs> I mean, The Room has had a uh, quite the cult following, right? And that's considered to be like the worst movie in the world, I think. Yeah, I've heard about that. I haven't seen it, but that's on the list. That's on the list. I've seen a couple clips. I would advise not watching it. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> it's good. Oh my god. But yeah, it really just goes to show that the energy you give off when you're doing a play is so what the audience is going to take from it. And like I said, when it, long and the short of it, when we're talking about theater, I think that there really is something for everybody. Like, our techies, we love them so much. It wasn't just like, oh, look at the actors, they're the star. Like, we appreciate and love them so much. My first experience doing stage managing, whole new appreciation for behind-the-scenes work. That was so stressful. I don't know how you did that, by the way. Good for you. <laughs> Thank that was you. a lot. But, yeah, really rewarding. Well, you know, it was the help and the friends I made along the way, insert other emotional BS as well, but yeah. <laughs> uh, God. no, it's, it's a fun time. I mean, you got people helping you out, right? Like it's, you guys are all really together in that, right? And I think like bottom line, I think it's really the idea of going through that project. Like you were stuck with these people, whether you like it or not for like what, like a good four months. And I think that- exactly that is really what brings people together and i think that's pretty much for me i think that's the huge enjoyment of uh doing plays and stuff so 
if anyone's interested in that, that's what I would advocate for. Just the idea of seeing a project through, you know, working with a group of people, just the teamwork, and it's a lot of fun. You, have you become to... a family, you really do. You have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I just, I can't recommend it enough. Like, a lot of people view it as one thing, which is going out on stage and learning a script and acting, but there's so much more to it than that. Like, the character development, if you're into the acting, the getting to work with people, and just seeing all this work you've put in come to life, even if you're a bit more introverted. Like, you could totally start with a smaller role and build your way up, or you could, like, um, maybe do something behind the scenes. It's way more interesting than you think it is. Like, I love getting to be artistic in terms of what does the set look like? How is this person's costume going to look? It's really, there's something for everyone, I feel like. For sure. I'll probably uh, do that at our university. Start small. Please do. <laughs> start small. I don't want a huge role. Start small. Yes, please yeah. do. We need people. Anyways, I think that probably takes us to the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't have anything to plug yet, but if I do, I'll make sure to cash in on that and get Nick Graves to plug it for me on the next one. Hey, if you've ever got anything you want to plug, I can always change the description. <laughs> oh, bless you. I'll definitely let you know. But until then, uh, once again, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, if you want to catch the Gravescast live, you can catch us every other Friday at 8 p.m. EST. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks talking about more cryptocurrency. Uh, we'll be talking about the Call of Duty Zombies lore, weirdly enough. That should be interesting. Nice uh, nostalgic part of my childhood. But uh, And then a couple other things. So tune into that. Uh, if you want to listen to after the show, then just go iTunes, Spotify, whatever. You can leave a voicemail. Um, if you want to send an email with recommendations for topics, guests, whatever, uh, shoot an email to thenfgraves at gmail.com and put Gravescast in the subject line. Just uh, helps me to distinguish. So, uh, With that, thanks for joining us, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.